For me, at the time, I didn't see it as much of a like going into it. I didn't see it as much of a challenge because I'd basically been in the closet up until that point anyway, and I'd only just recently accepted myself and come out. So for me, it was like, all right, well, I just came out four or five months ago. I can just throw myself back in the closet. I know how comfortable it is there. I got the experience, um, and that's honestly what what it was like for me. I was like, okay, I'm. Like I said, I just accept myself anyway. I'm not going to do anything. I can just go there and just keep living like I've been living. Like, be happy, have make friends, blah, blah, and just not and explore any kind of relationship with anyone. That was Bernard Smalls, and you're listening to Tetua with Benjamin Morse. everybody and welcome to the inaugural episode of Tetuat with Benjamin Morse. My name is of course Benjamin Morse and I will be your host. A little bit about me, I've been traveling internationally since I was about three years old. I've lived abroad for almost four years of my life and I've visited over 35 countries. And throughout these travels, I've learned many things, met many people along the way, and I keep being transformed over and over again. There's something so special about traveling. And many of the people that I've met along the way have had amazing stories to share and so much wisdom to bestow. And the idea of inviting folks into this format is really a culmination of these years of creative pursuit and genuine curiosity about what connects us as humans and what makes each of us unique. I'm super excited to explore the depths of this revolutionary change brought about by travel. And I think that all of us on some level aspire to live up to our true potential and to challenge the status quo. And for me, travel is one of those things that really helps us identify what's important. It allows us to disconnect from the perils of modern day life and reconnect with who we truly are deep down. I couldn't be more excited uh, to announce that Mr. Bernard Smalls will be my first guest for this conversation. And as you will probably experience here, Bernard is my best friend. He is an incredible mentor and coach so full of wisdom and lived experience and all of that really stretches across both time and space in this conversation we are lucky enough to hear a bit of his story and we address topics from identity to travel and international developments to environmental education and really at the heart of it genuine growth through struggle and resilience he is such an amazing human. I'm so excited for you to be able to listen to this conversation. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, Mr. Bernard Smalls, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? How's it going? Good, good. First of all, I'm just incredibly grateful to be talking to you in this medium. We've known each other since October 3rd, 2011. <laughs> <laughs> wow, nine years. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we met in Philadelphia as we were assigned roommates, uh, as yep. we were kind of taking our first baby steps toward becoming Peace Corps volunteers in Ethiopia. We got bean sprouts. We got them bean sprouts. <laughs> I, well, you can't mention that without telling that that story. That's, yeah, that's exactly true. I actually, um, 
I literally remember the moment that like we uh, came into the apartment, uh, not to the apartment, to the hotel room and you were talking to Frank and you guys were like, you were looking in your bag and you had all these different like seeds and stuff that you were bringing with you to Ethiopia. And at some point, I don't remember if it was quite then or at some point in the night, <laughs> I think probably later on once we had had a few libations and stuff, <laughs> you were bragging again about all of your seeds. It just took a packet of bean sprouts and we're like, I got bean sprouts, motherfucker. <laughs> And we just like died laughing after that. Like, <laughs> I love it. It's, yeah, it's so funny. Um, and really, since that first night we we hung out, like that's just that's been the tone for for the last you know like nine years that we've <laughs> we've known each other. Oh, definitely, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and you know, for just, for folks listening too, like a little more background, like you ended up, uh, like officiating my wedding. You, uh, you know, you, you paced me in several ultra endurance events on multiple, uh, continents. You know, we, <laughs> yes, that's true. we share, you know, a personal and professional, uh, background in environmental education and sustainability. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've had a cornucopia of colorful conversations about identity, race, privilege, <laughs> International mm-hmm. development, travel, uh, pff, apparently bean sprouts and gardening way back in the day. And <laughs> I'm sure we really covered it all. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, 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 I know for a fact there are so many, there's so many like days and nights in Ethiopia where we just had these hour, hour long conversations or hours long conversations about everything under the sun. Like <laughs> you definitely covered it yeah. all. <laughs> and, you know, listen, I've been in awe of, you know, your accomplishments, your ability to connect authentically both to the moment and to folks around you and ultimately like the friendly and compassionate open person that you are. And, you know, I think that that will come out in this conversation uh, for others. But one of the, the one thing I really just want to call out on the top of this is you just graduated with your second bachelor's degree, uh, shifting completely into a new sector. So now you've, you've become a social worker in Germany and it like that to me is such such a great example of you know how you just are a seeker and how you continue to grow and you continue to learn and you continue to think about ways that you can help those around you so huge shout out yeah thank you um i really appreciate that you know i think if you had told me when i was younger that one day i would get a social work degree, I would have absolutely laughed, laughed uh, you off. But I think that's what like, um, I, I never really planned this. And um, I think that's the cool thing about life, though, is that like, you kind of as you just grow and learn, like you were saying, and I, um, as you grow and learn, there are just new possibilities, new avenues that open up. And I think the coolest thing about me getting this degree is not because I want to completely shift away what I uh, was like, you know, did a lot of work in before. Or which is environmental education stuff, but because I really want to merge the two because I want to not only help the environment and help um, and teach people more about the environment, but also use that as an opportunity to help people's lives be better as well and to help um, so many people that, you know, could really benefit from the environment and just don't have the opportunity or the education or the whatever. Um, so that's why I'm actually really grateful, too, that my path has led me here because I have learned a lot out of it and because I see more opportunities now than I even did before to continue to help both the world and like people and the environment. You, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And you've always been really good at making those 
like interdisciplinary connections and also just weaving different pieces of your identity and, and your background and your lived experiences into the work that you do. And I, I think of so many times in both living in Ethiopia, working alongside you as a environmental uh, Peace Corps volunteer, but also in, in settings after that where you're really bringing in something that's unique uh, to that position and you're trying to kind of uh, flex it in, in a way that uh, can really bolster your efforts in, in your current spot. And I think that that's, that's one thing that really inspires me about you. And they always say, you know, surround yourself by those that inspire you the most. And again, you've very clearly been one of those people from the beginning for me. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate that. And, I, you know, I think one of the greatest things about Peace Corps, though, is that that's what like all of us were there. All of us were doing that. Like I, I some of my best friends, including you, are from Peace Corps because there's so many like inspiring people there. And you, well, all of the things that you accomplished when you're in Ethiopia, there are so many cool projects that we both worked together on and things that you spearheaded that I was able to be a part of. That's just like really inspires me, too. There's you have set yourself so many huge goals and just uh, knock them out of the park one after the other and I just know that like that's why we're such good friends we both have different things that we bring to the table but we're both learners and explorers and wanting to do more and wanting to help people and it's like I said I can only give back the same thing to you because that's just who you know who people we who we are and who like a lot of the other Peace Corps volunteers were as well just really good people and I really just I'm just grateful for my friendship and for my experiences with you as well. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. And I think that you you nailed it, that there were so many interesting and, and unique folks, both in the Peace Corps and, and really, you know, in so many other experiences that you've had, you know, I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting, you know, other folks in your lives, whether it be in uh, Texas or in Germany, where you are now, or in, in really other settings, You're just kind of hearing about some of the stories of the folks around you. And again, it's really who you surround yourself with. And, you know, so yeah. I, I want to dive into all of this um, in this conversation. Um, but, you know, maybe we can kick things off by going back to your roots a little bit. And mm-hmm. you know, I know that you're in Germany now. Um, you were yeah. born in Germany. So, you know, mm-hmm. where in Germany were you born and, and how did your family come to live there? Yeah. So my mom is German. My dad is uh, African-American. Uh, my dad was stationed. He was, he was uh, in the military for over 20 years. Uh, or about 20 years, and he was stationed for a long time in Germany in a town called Gießen, actually, which is like maybe about 45 minutes north of Frankfurt. Um, yeah, and so my parents, they met while my dad was stationed there. They fell in love, got married, uh, lived there for a while, um, and then, yeah, had me and my little brother. Uh, my dad, uh, my older brother, um, was already alive at that time. He was about five years older than me. He also li- lived in Gießen. Um, and he's from one of my dad's previous relationships. And yeah, we just, um, yeah, we just had like, I don't know. Was the, that was like, the, that was my roots. My roots were at, first of all, being, it's interesting, like being on an army base in the middle of Germany. So you had both. I had my like, my grandma and my grandma and grandpa, all my German family around me. And at the same time, we were like living in like a little mini America in the middle of these, of, um, of the, of Gießen. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. That's kind of where it's, that's kind of where it started. Yeah. And like, so, so how old were you when you, when you moved away? 
Um, so we actually did a little bit of a back and forth. The first time was when I was four years old. Four, four, uh, when I was four years old, we got stationed in Texas, in Killeen. Um, and we got stationed there for three years. Uh, then we actually ended up moving back to Germany, but to a different part of Germany. It's called a really small town, Kitzing, and no one's uh, ever heard of it. But it's in, close to a town called uh, Würzburg, which for some people who know their way around Germany might know where that is, just outside of Würzburg. Um, and we were there for a couple more years as well. Um, after that, we actually moved back to the States when I was 10 years old, and then we stayed in Killeen for the rest of my childhood after that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's that's mind-bending in so many ways to, you know, at such a young age, you're going through what I can only imagine, um, you know, between two very different <laughs> worlds. And, uh, you know, it sounds like, you know, your family also came from two very different worlds. Like what, when you were younger, like, did, was that something that you, you noticed? Like, is that something that you really thought about or did that kick in maybe as you got a little bit older? You know, yeah, that's the that's the interesting part. I really when you're when I was a kid, I never thought anything really of it. It, it was very clear to me. Okay, we're you know, especially when we were living in Germany, for example, those were some of my favorite years. Were when we were living in Kitzingen because it was like, um, you know, like during the week I, we were living at home. I went to school. I actually always went to school in English. I never went to school in German, um, and because we were living on the army base, so I went to like an American school, and it was kind of like a little bit of mini America, but like literally we went off base and we were immediately surrounded by Germany. And so on the weekends, we would go visit my grandparents and I would, I would you know, like my grandparents don't speak English. So I was living in, well, you know, visiting my grandparents, doing just normal everyday German life on the weekends. During the week, my mom would cook schnitzel sometimes. Sometimes she would make spaghetti. Sometimes, you know, it was all mixed together. It wasn't like there wasn't this clear separate. I mean, it, it was a little bit of a separation, but it wasn't it wasn't weird in my head. In my head, it was like, yeah, I do American things and I do German things because I'm both, you know, um, it, it wasn't really it wasn't until much, much later, um, actually, probably the past couple of years when I moved back to Germany um, that I began to notice like how much each how much each culture actually influenced my personality and the way I view the world that it actually became more of a distinction for me <laughs> and I realized how much of an influence or how much more time I spent in, around US culture than I did around German culture if that does that make any sense <laughs> yeah no absolutely and I, I think that you and I have talked about that before and and something that that we've really gone deep into over the years is identity and how it evolves and changes you know with the context and changes over time and really how it impacts the way that we navigate the world, the opportunities that we have, the way that people perceive us, the way we perceive ourselves. Um, Definitely. And yeah. And, and it, yeah, I mean, your, your background is, is really, uh, kind of a testament to that and I think from an early stage it sounds like you you know it wasn't quite on your radar but you were living it were there any were there any other you know kids that were in similar boats that they were kind of going back and forth that that you were hanging out with in Germany or um, you know how did your brothers uh, Michael and David like how did they uh, think through these things as well yeah. Um, yeah, there are definitely other kids. Um, there was, I remember specifically in Kitsing and well, first of all, both everywhere, there were, t there were a lot of people actually like us. There were a lot of young, um, half American, half German, uh, kids that, <laughs> 
excuse me, um, that grew up either on the army bases or maybe off the army bases. There were a lot of uh, a lot of those, and there were even um, kids that had that same thing, but with other cultures. For example, there was a um, um, a family all the way upstairs. No, yeah, well, there were multiple cultures. That's right. We had a good friends all the way in our house that were from um, where their mother was from Panama, so they were half Panamanian, half American. We had another family where their mother was from Korea, so we had she had a half Korean, half American, and they all had their different. You know what I mean? They're there's the same things at home where they would have where they would do uh, let's say cook food and celebrate holidays from both cultures um, yeah it was very it was very multi multi culty like very mixed um, um, and yeah and for my brothers um, I, I don't know I think we all had a different experience to be honest because like for example my older brother David he really he grew up with his mom and he grew up in um, like off base so his entire experience was much more influenced by Germany and who spent he spent his whole life in Germany actually and would come to visit basically us um, so his experience was a lot different um, than let's say Michael's and I and and I think even for Michael my younger brother and I I think it was also a lot different because I got to experience a little, I spent a little bit more time as a young child in Germany than he did. So, um, we, I actually like, for example, when we were first learning to speak, I actually, we still had it at the time where we were speaking both languages pretty extensively at home. Whereas like once we were a little bit older, my mom kind of stopped speaking so much German at home or stopped expecting us to respond in German. Um, so he had a little bit less of a connection to the language and had a little bit more difficulty with that. Um, and just generally, I think, spent a little bit less time in Germany. And he didn't have this, let's say, identity crisis that I had, for example, when I came back here a couple years ago. Um, yeah. And um, but I but yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. No, that's that's. I mean, you know, humans are so multifaceted and that's truly what makes us amazing. And, you know, we can learn from everyone that we meet and, and we can all see the world, you know, differently by connecting to folks that are, are different, that are around us. Right. And I yeah. think that, you know, for you going back and forth from Colleen, Texas to, <laughs> uh, to Gießen and, and other parts of Germany, kind of back and forth like that, that was kind of flexing those muscles early on for you in a way that I think a lot of folks, uh, don't have, uh, that experience. Right. And, you Definitely. know, I know that you and I have talked about this a little bit of, you know, the, the notion of like not being German enough to be German, not being American enough to be American. And, um, you know, what, like, what was that like back then? Was that something that you, that you were acutely aware of, like, as you made those transitions back and forth or again, did that, did that set in a little bit later? You know, um, I think it probably, I think my, my first awareness of it definitely was when we came back to Germany the second time we were in Kitzingen. Um, because before then, up until I was four years old, like I said, my mom and I spoke German at home when my dad wasn't there. And after we spent the first couple of years in Texas, that switched because my mom needed to practice her English and because I went to school in English and just came home and was lazy and kept speaking English. So my first inklings of it was actually that I had lost some of my language skills when I came back to Germany the second time um i kind of didn't I, it was still fine because at the time you're so young and i just didn't even really pay much attention to it i still knew like i'm german and i'm, I'm american and blah, blah blah and i was just like totally just happy with that um and i was just a little bit thinking like oh i just need to brush up on my german that's the only thing otherwise i am you know and it was it was really the when i kind of went through identity crisis was four years ago when i came back and like i was saying i kind of realized how 
how much my personality is, is uh, how American my personality is, how loud I am compared to Germans, how, um, you know, a lot of Germans, like I, I remember I um, was really taken aback one day because I was hanging out with a couple of friends probably about six months after I got here and we were hanging out and we were, you know, all celebrating and stuff. And I was just like, like I tend to do just like, kind of just like, oh my gosh, you're so amazing. And I just love having <laughs> you around and I'm just super excited. And she literally looked at me and she said, stop complimenting me. It makes me feel uncomfortable, which is a thing that like, like Germans don't really do that. They don't go around just like, you know, like, throw, like throwing out compliments just like that. Or like really like, especially for people that you don't know that well, you know, for them, the way they build relationships, the way they do a lot of things, it's much, much slower pace, much more like, I want to get to know you. I really want to like, you know what I mean? And just the kind of like, ex, like, um, how do I describe that? Um, just the interactions that we have are Americans, Germans, a lot of Germans actually see them as pretty fake because we get so excited and we get do these things. And even though we mean them or, you know, because we're extra polite in grocery stores and because we're blah, blah, blah. um, A lot of Germans like talked about the U S and even though they didn't say to, to me directly, even though they didn't directly accuse me of being this way, the way they talked about Americans, it was very clear that like, Oh wait, I fall into that category. So I struggled a little bit in the beginning being like, wow, I'm, I'm, I don't, nowhere near at like I'm not like a lot of my German friends when it comes to my personality. I'm not a lot like a lot of these, like a lot of the people here. And it made me feel very like weird because even though I'd always identified myself as German, I came here and realized like, whoa, (laughs) you were way more American, you know? Sure. Yeah. And you know, for the record, you're, you're quite uh, boisterous and and loud in other places (laughs) as well. And I (laughs) think there's definitely a spectrum there. Um, No, I, I, totally i i totally understand what you're saying about that that context in germany and you know i've experienced uh similar things in in other countries where uh you just have to be acutely aware of those kind of cultural markers that you're bringing into a context and you know in, yeah. in ethiopia is probably the most uh stark example of that just you know for us working through uh you know learning an entire new culture and language and you know how to interact and society and one of the examples is like i always think of the ethiopian orthodox priests and how uh you you actually don't shake their hands you yeah you you kiss their little crosses that they have and you show respect in other ways um and as the uh white american male in my town (laughs) you know when i when i reached out to shake their hands they would actually shake my hand and like everyone would kind of look at me like wow like he just shook the hand of a priest and you know, yeah. <laughs> when I was super early in my service and I didn't even understand that kind of cultural nuance, um, you know, it, it really yeah. was kind of a steep learning curve. And, and then you, once you're aware of it, you can adapt. Right. But, you know, yeah. and then it sounds like you've, you've, uh, to as much as to the extent that it's possible, you've adapted to, uh, you know, maybe dialing back, uh, you know, some of those interactions in Germany, but it's, it's interesting to me because this is also such an innate and innate part of your personality. And Mm -hmm. it's a way that you interact with those around you. And it's, it's so core and genuine to who you are. So -hmm. there's always that kind of back and forth between, um, you know, immersing yourself in a culture and like really understanding and respecting the way that that folks live and interact Mm -hmm. and build relationships and express joy and gratitude. Uh, 
but then also, you know, trying to be yourself and be authentic and authentic yeah. travel is a, is a challenging thing for sure. Yep. Yeah, De- uh, definitely. And uh, how would you, um, yeah, like to and to uh, give like a, to answer your question a little bit, or to answer, or to give a little bit back to that. Um, it's interesting because I think, for example, in Ethiopia, uh, me going to Ethiopia um, and dealing with the culture shock there, and me going back to Germany and dealing with culture shock there, were two very different things for me. Because for going to Ethiopia and being like, okay, well, this is it's easy. It's, this is not my culture. I know I'm learning about something completely um, um, foreign, you know what I mean? Something not something completely new. And so it's uh, it's kind of like, OK, you, you don't have to change yourself completely. But, you know, like it's easier, I think, to be like, OK, um, I'm just going to take a step back and not do this and this and this, because like I know that's going to like really upset people here. You know what I mean? Um, and in coming to Germany, I, I, I think I have changed a little bit for sure. Um, and and it was it, it is just so interesting because I think what upset me more here is that I was even discovering that there were aspects of this culture that were foreign to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't that like okay yeah of course I can be a little bit quieter. I can, you know what I mean? Of course I can just like maybe not you know yell compliments at people on the street like that's like something that I can do without feeling that I like am really changing my personality. I'm still gonna be myself. I'm not gonna take it away completely. You know? But you it's sound just confident, like confident, but I'm not sure that you could actually <laughs> dial that back. I'm like, I'm like really doubting that that's something you, you actually have control over. <laughs> okay. You're right. You're right. I'm literally screaming in this apartment right now, but still <laughs> just talking to you on the phone. No, I, I think a little bit. Yeah. I've adapted somewhat. Um, but I think for me, like I said, the harder part was just knowing that there were aspects of a culture that I identified with that were like shocking to me, you know what I mean? Which is yeah. a weird thing to have when you, like I said, when you have such an intense bond with a culture at a, such a young age and then you're not there for a long time. And then all of a sudden you come back and you're like, whoa, wait a second. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So you moved to, you know, clean Texas uh, for Mm -hmm. the second time when you were uh, 10 years old. Yeah. Um, You know, what was that? Reimmersion, like what was that transition like? And and obviously you were there for much longer than the first stint. You were older uh, and you were starting to yeah. kind of you know put roots down in the states. Yeah. Um. It was. On the one hand, it wasn't. No, it was difficult. It, the, the The first year was difficult, but it was actually only difficult because of school. Um, I had like it just happened to be like. Um, it's just coincidence, basically, that I moved back uh, in the middle of the school year in my fifth grade year, which um, even though I didn't have I didn't have any problems adjusting to like back to American culture, really, because it was like we were living on the army base the whole time. It wasn't weird. You know what I mean? Maybe I had to get used to the weather because it's Texas and it's super, super hot. But like, <laughs> um, no, like the problems I had were just being uh, an outsider and just having that experience of like moving in and no one knows you and you have to make all new friends and you have to do all these things. Um, so that's why like the first year was kind of tough. Um but after that, it was like we started middle school. So 
that we are all back on new footing. We're all back. And at, in the years after that, we're just normal life for me. I did, you know, I, I, it seems weird, but like for me, it was like, yeah, I'm back here in Texas now. Like this is another home that I have other than Germany. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense. Um, and you know, thinking through some of the other conversations that we've had, you know, you're, you're also in your your family structure and you're you're trying to you know grow up and kind of think through uh different you know other pieces of your identity and and grow yeah. into those um so you yeah. mentioned that your uh your family was quite religious and yeah. um you know I, I know you've you've gone through uh different evolutions with that as well do you want to talk <laughs> me through kind of where maybe where you were at when you were 10 uh and kind of maybe yeah. even even before that and how how that has uh impacted you know the way that you've you've grown up yeah yeah definitely so um yeah i i identify as homosexual like i'm gay um and i'm very comfortable i'm very proud with that um um and for me that journey started though fairly young there were signs when i was younger but i don't know like obviously i don't think really for in my personal opinion for myself how i didn't like how i you know there are things that like kids do like yeah i kissed a couple other boys when i was like four or five years old or did you know like had a little short phase where I, you know, acted like a girl or whatever that means based off of gender, stereo, gender stereotypes, you know what I mean? Um, it was it presented myself as very feminine, let's put it that way. Um, and But really, it wasn't until I was about 12, 13 years old that I really realized... Um, yeah, that I actually was attracted to other guys in my class and not the girls in my class. And um, and so for the first years, basically throughout up until the time I moved out of my parents' house, um, I buried it deep and I really like struggled with it by myself. Um, my parents, like you said, are very religious. I grew up very conservatively after about eight years old. Uh, that's when my dad became a Christian. And um yeah, and um, we were very, uh, very, very conservative, like the kind of like you, where we went to church from eight o'clock to one o'clock and came back at six for another two, three hour service, you know, for, for a long time or just where, you know, abortion, homosexuality, all of these things were sins, uh, sexual, you know, were sins of God and they weren't, you know, talked about. And, um, and so, so that I knew so that my basic understanding at that point was like, okay, I am, my understanding with 13, when these first thoughts came was that, oh, I am now being possessed by the demon of homosexuality. Um, and so out of fear and because of a lot of things, I didn't talk about it for the first four or five years until I was 18. I didn't talk about it. I never talked about it with my parents. I didn't talk about it with anyone. I just secretly prayed, tried to pray the gay away. <laughs> um, and yeah, and just kind of like kind of ignored it for a good chunk too. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, that's, Thanks. Thanks for being so open and, and sharing that in this in this setting. And I think that, you know, you and I have have talked about that story at length. Um, and, you know, again, like kind of going back to to your your original kind of back and forth uh, between Germany and the U.S. This is another, mm -hmm. I think, piece of your identity that we've we've talked through before where you're kind of going back and forth um, between what what you're feeling and, and really who you are, but also what you know, your family and society and others are saying you have to be right. It's that that back and forth um, uh, again between kind of two different worlds. 
Yeah, definitely. That was like, for me, that's actually what I always, um, how I, well, once I actually started to deal with it later on, once I left my parents' house, I went to college and that's where I actually really started to face the fact that I was attracted to it. Like I never did anything to them. Like I, I'm, I'm kid you not, like not to get too graphic, but I never watched porn. I never did any of any of that. I literally was just so focused on just being a good Christian. Um, and it was only after that, that I really started to explore my sexuality and actually start to deal with it. Um, but it was still like, there was so much like self-hatred and fear and and so much of the, the Christian dogma that my parents had instilled in me that it took me f- four years, it took me another four years to even acknowledge, or let's say not to acknowledge, but to own up to the fact that I was gay. And even then, <laughs> even then, as you well know, by our first, by our first meeting, I still sometimes struggled and told people I was bi first before I told them, no, 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 I'm actually not bi. Um, I think I, what, what was the percentage I gave you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I know. So this is, yeah, I mean, so the first, the first night that you and I met in Philadelphia, um, uh, you know, this is, this is actually probably before the bean sprouts, uh, Piece, or maybe actually around the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, I think so. Yeah. But no, we, we came back and uh, I, I was actually journaling uh, at, literally when you were telling me, but you said, uh, you're like, listen, there's something I have to tell you. Uh, I'm, I'm 50% into men and 50% into women. And you gave me this like this split that uh, you didn't quite want to commit to that uh, yeah, I'm yeah. gay, but you wanted yeah. to like let me know that like, yeah. hey, I'm... <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm not straight. And it was, it was, it was one of the, the most like authentic, uh, interactions that we had in the beginning. Um, and, and it was so funny because over the next couple of, uh, weeks and months, the, those percentages, like a sliding scale started, started kind of tilting, uh, more toward men. And it was, it was funny to kind of watch the, the evolution, but from a, a really serious, uh, perspective, like that is something that I've never had to deal with. Like, I'm a cisgender, mm-hmm. white American, you know, straight male. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, without having gone through any of those uh, types of struggles personally, like trying to just, you know, think through what that, you know, would have been like when you were 10 and, and talking through that in, in Texas and, you know, growing up in a very conservative family, but then also living in uh, a society in, in the United States and in Texas in particular as well that, that you know, didn't greet, uh, being gay with, with open arms. Um, I mean, that's, that's just next level. And, you know, you think of an 18 year old that goes to school, like, of course, everyone is, is really coming into, uh, contact with, you know, who they are for the first time in many regards. And I think that that, that has been such an kind of eye-opening experiences in in many ways for so many people but to have to you know carry with you that baggage and that history and that internal struggle uh into that setting in now many different ways uh that that must have been uh, a really you know unique and and nuanced experience for you for sure i mean what was what was that like so you went to uh University of Texas, right? Nope. Texas A&M. Nope. Ah. Texas A&M, yeah. Texas A&M. <laughs> Gig um, Yeah, so I mean, like, how quickly did that, that evolution happen for you in that setting? 
Oh, it took me it took me a long time too. I um I mean, Texas A&M uh, I had a great time there, but it's still, you know, we're still in the middle of Texas. It's still very conservative. Um I I would say because most people are younger, I didn't have any um well, let's say, let's put it this way. I did make friends and I had people, I had a support system there that actually if I had felt comfortable enough to completely come out to them, they would have also been they would have been supportive uh um but it still took it took me a really long time because for the like the let's put it like without going into too many details but the the first year it was just me even starting to acknowledge the fact that these attractions existed um and my second year of college was very much about uh, i was very angry because now that i'd find because before then i kind of yeah you know i cried and blah 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 but i never really dealt with it in my first year i actually acknowledged the fact that these attractions existed which made me very angry the second year at God because I was like, why you know, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me with this? And I've asked you a million times and you're not making me be straight and um, I don't know. And then I took another year where I just kind of didn't care and just ignored it completely. And my final year at A&M was finally when everything kind of came to a head because interestingly enough, I actually recommitted. I actually accepted the fact that my attractions existed at that point and then recommitted myself to God and said, OK, I have the attractions, but I won't do anything. And then through all a series of events that happened in the year, I just ended up realizing that it was so much more than what the church had taught me, which is just it's a sexual sin. It became clear to me that year that it was about connection, that it was about love, that it was about relationships, that it was about more than just gay sex. And um, and and as silly as that sounds, maybe that to, to tell to, for someone to understand that when, like I said, growing up the way it's descri- it was described in my church, that's what it was always about. It was always about the like the actual sex that was the part that was the problem, sure. um, which made which made that when I made that eye opening connection that like, yeah, well, I want more than just the sex. You know what I mean? It's like it actually helped me accept myself and you know and become even or not yeah just accept myself more and and it wasn't until but it really wasn't until ethiopia that like and my experience with you guys and i have to i told you this a thousand times and i'll tell you this a thousand times again um like you were one of the first people in my life that not only just said like, okay, like granted, like I said, and I don't mean to knock anyone, like all my friends were always super supportive, always like super, you know, like, yeah, we don't care, you know, but you were one of the first people in my life to say, the, to be like, listen, someone, whoever meets you one day, they're going to be lucky to have you. Like, I'm really excited for the person that gets to be in a relationship with you later on. And that was how that, how the, the entire time in Peace Corps, like that time in Ethiopia really, which was ironic. On it because I actually had to be back in the you remember this I actually had yeah. to be back in the closet in Ethiopia because it was it's illegal there and so I actually didn't do you know but the support system under the Peace Corps volunteers was so intense that like it actually helped me to develop even further and become even more comfortable with who I was who I am sorry um, yeah and since then I've been living my life <laughs> yeah and, well well. I want to go back to that Ethiopia um, mm-hmm. kind of having to pull yourself back and, and again, hide that piece of who you are uh, after yeah. so many wor- years of working working to get that out there uh, and be comfortable yeah. with it in settings like that transition. Uh, I, I mean, we, we've talked about it, but I definitely want to talk about that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so, you know, here in, you know, 
this current moment, um, we've made a lot of progress since the Stonewall uprisings in in 69 uh, on the LGBTQ front. And, you know, with that progress, you know, there's there's new issues and challenges that emerge. Um, But, you know, it's still not it's definitely not an easy world to step out into. And, you know, thinking back through your your journey, you know, what what advice would you have for somebody that's listening right now on on kind of how to navigate that uh, those conversations, how to navigate that internal dialogue, how to really think about embracing uh, that specific piece of your identity and stepping into who you are? Ooh, yeah, that's cool. That's, that's a very good question. Um, Mm. You know, I think um, I think it's really important that for anyone who's starting to realize things about themselves, I think some of the most important things are to be um, patient, you know, um, to be patient with yourself. I think it's very I think when we have these expectations of ourselves and then our sexuality our identity expresses itself differently i think it's very easy to get very frustrated very quickly and to which leads to all the feelings of hate and anger and self-rejection um when things don't happen the way they are supposed to or maybe even as you're accepting yourself when you start to get when you feel fear in certain situations or whatever it is um I think it's, yeah, I think it's just very important to be patient with yourself, to seek support from others, like from if, if it is possible for you. Um, I know that like not every Christian kid growing up in a family may, um, may be able to go and like reach out to someone to get support. And I think that, I think that's a very good, like a very important point. It's one thing that um, I actually listened to a podcast from Dan Savage that I think is also um, where he says the same thing, where he he basically advises people if while you're doing this, if your process of coming out and being your, your true self and, you know, identify and accepting your identity, if it puts you in danger, then you know, which it can for like, let's say a teenager growing up in a very Christian home, then you, then it's okay in those situations to kind of wait until you can feel like you, you know, until you're out of your parents' household. So there's that distance there where you're not going to then get thrown into one of these, um, one of those camps called conversion camps or whatever it is. Um, yeah. And so that's why it's like, it's important to be patient, it's important to like, um, seek support from others when you can. And, yeah and just just take your time with it you know like i said it's it's a difficult process um and sometimes it's too easy or sometimes we put too much pressure on ourselves or too much pressure from other people we listen too much uh, to the peer pressure from other people and we get down on ourselves about it and it just takes time it takes time and just remember to love yourself and to be patient and to seek support from others if yeah, it's possible I, I love that answer thank you and and i know the the weight of that question i can hear it in your voice <laughs> and i know that it's it's probably also still something that you're you know, working through, it's not, it's, I don't think it will ever be a, oh, I'm, I'm, I've achieved, you know, what I've been searching for my whole life. I'm now comfortable in every single setting and every single, uh, you know, family get together and every single, uh, you know, cultural interaction and all that, like, it's never going to get to that 
point. Yeah. Um, and I think that with with whatever piece of your identity um, that you're that you're trying to really, you know, work through and embrace, and and like you said, you know, be really authentic. Yeah. You know, that's that's going to be a process, and I think that's one of the things that I've really learned, you know, from you directly, and especially when we're in Ethiopia. I think this might be an, another opportunity to start uh, diving into that front a little bit more. And you know, one of the the first conversations that you and I had in in Philadelphia, and kind of as we were you know beginning to think about you know flying over to Ethiopia, was about homosexuality and how yeah. it was and still is illegal in Ethiopia and many other parts of the world, and how as an LGBTQIA plus uh, person, you have to navigate uh, those different settings anywhere you travel. And you you really have to be super aware of what situations you're you're putting yourself in. So as Dan Savage, uh, you know, so thoughtfully mentioned in, in that podcast, like if it puts you in danger, you really have to think about what that that next step is and, and really how to adapt. So yeah. in Ethiopia, like how are you thinking about going into that that country? I guess where were you at in terms of, um, you know, being who you are in the States and being, you know, out and, and really having, uh, you know, trusting relationships with folks, but then making that shift to Ethiopia, being surrounded by a whole bunch of other Peace Corps volunteers that were new to you. Um, you know, all of those things, like where were you at? Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting because like (laughs) for me at the time, I didn't see it as much of a, like going into it, I didn't see it as much of a challenge because I'd basically been in the closet up until that point anyway. And I'd only just recently accepted myself and come out. So for me, it was like, all right, well, I just came out four or five months ago. I can just throw myself back in the closet. I know how comfortable it is there. I got the experience. Um, and that's honestly what, what it was like for me. I was like, okay, I'm, like I said, I just accept myself anyway. I'm not going to do anything. I can just go there and just keep living like I've been living. Like, be happy, have make friends, blah, blah, and just not and explore any kind of relationship with anyone. Um, being there, it... It was it was interesting. It was definitely interesting because speaking of cultural differences, um, one of the one of the craziest cultural differences or one of the biggest shocking for me from Ethiopia was how touchy um, and fe- how touchy feely men are there amongst them amongst each other. Like in America, you know, in the U.S., it's very much like bro, bro, yeah, yeah, and like lots of distance and blah, blah, and there the like guys would walk hand in hand on the street they would caress each other's faces and they would just, you know, be super loving to each other, which which I really actually appreciated, I appreciated that the the expectation of what a man is supposed to do and how, you know how much physical contact can be between French, like between friends how that was different in, in, in Ethiopia than the US, but it also made it really weird <laughs> for me than walking down the street with, you know, Ethiopians holding my hand or, you know, Ethiopian men holding my hand or caressing my face when I'm trying to, like, stay in the closet, you know what I mean? Um, right, absolutely. <laughs> like, the social construction of of gender, like, it, it's... And, and really societal norms and how you're supposed to behave and the things you're supposed to say. And like, I mean, hold, like I remember holding hands with, with my male counterparts, you know, walking through the, <laughs> the regional capital of the, uh, the, the region that we were in really early on in my service and just realizing that this is a, a, a very unique experience that I haven't had in this, in this type of setting. Yep. And you know, that's again as like a cisgender, like, <laughs> you know, straight male. And like it, those, those are the things that like, 
you know, it was really touchy-feely, like you said. There was a lot of, um, you know, physical contact in the greetings and and really even just how you relax and kind of hang out with people. But that's because being gay wasn't even an option. Yeah. Like that in, in, in their culture in Ethiopia, that's not even on the table. So it's like you just don't even think about it, right? Exactly, exactly. And do you think, but do you think that that's like, that's what allows them to do that? Like that, to have that physical contact is because of their opinions about homosexuality or is it just, uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? No, I mean, that's such a great question. And I, I, I had a few of my best friends, you know, them too, mm-hmm. um, that we, we had very frank conversations about these, these things just because I really trusted them and I got to know them. And, you know, it was really clear that, that. I think socially, uh, they were probably more progressive than their society allowed them to be. So like when I'm, I'm talking with a couple of my best friends, uh, I think they, they generally like, and very genuinely understand, uh, you know, how, um, LGBTQ folks in the U S uh, live and like how, um, how accepting, you know, parts of our society are, uh, and, and a lot more accepting than Ethiopian society in many regards. But there was, there was the openness from a person to person perspective, like just talking to me. Yeah. But I think there was still like very clearly that deeply seated, um, kind of cultural no-no that existed for them. And I think part of it was in the kind of Orthodox Christianity tradition that they, they identify with Mm -hmm. that again is less of like a dogmatic approach to religion and more just so, you know, intertwined with Ethiopian identity. The, the language is shaped very much um, in, in part because of the, the religion, the leave takings, the, uh, you know, the interactions with folks and really the, the beliefs, the belief system is just so ingrained in, in, uh, you know, the, the, the culture of Ethiopia, but I don't know, I'd be interested to hear what your, your reactions to that would be as well. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting actually, because that this whole idea and this whole question actually, um, inspired me to, for one of the, um, projects that I did for in my last semester in school, we talked about uh, male friendships and what they mean and and how those interactions, you know what I mean? And th- th- this was my thought process is being like, wow, how, how different it is in Ethiopia and in Germany and the US and all these different countries, how, how men like have friendships and express friendships and where where it comes from does it come from the generals does it come from the culture from the religion from the like like exactly like all the different uh, uh, facets that you're just talking about where where do why do men interact with each other the way that they do and I think it's I honestly think it's way too complicated of a question to answer like just like that who knows you know who knows really like I think it's a combination of a lot of different things um, but I just yeah I just find it fascinating I just I, I just generally find this whole and just even talking about it fascinating because like I said because the interesting thing for example in Ethiopia they still have the generals that the man should take care of the family and provides food and has lots of kids and stuff like that you know what I mean which is one of the things that we talked about on our project as being an influencer like an influence on that but like there they have similar generals but it's still not you know what I mean the friendships still express themselves differently so I don't know I think I think it's probably a combination of a lot of those different factors like you said of the religion of the generals of everything you know what I mean absolutely and you know you know for us as as Peace Corps volunteers coming into a country like Ethiopia I think another thing that is really important here is each of us has our own uh 
you know, cultural background and identity that we're bringing in to these, yeah. these, you know, in Ethiopia and in our context. And I remember, mm-hmm. you know, you and I were part of the peer support network um, yeah. that was kind of a group of volunteers that, uh, you know, really helped shed light on on identity and how it impacts our service and how to support people through this. And I remember one of the exercises mm-hmm. we would do with new volunteers was to basically put up kind of these different um, signifiers of identity. So some of mm-hmm. them were outward facing, some of them were inward facing, um, and some you could hide when you walk in a room, others you obviously can't. So we went through things like, uh, you know, gender and race and uh, sexual identification and like all, all these different things. And like, you know, in, in different situations, you you either have privilege or you don't. And yeah. I, you know, like for for you, like everyone thought you were Ethiopian. Like everyone would be like, oh, like you're you're Habesha, and they would be like, no, like he's not American, like whatever. Um, and I remember them telling me that Barack Obama was from Ethiopia, and I'm like, he yeah. actually yeah. is not. Like. Uh, and, and the other example that I have is when we were watching the Olympics and, you know, a large percentage of our uh, summer Olympics, our track and field stars are black. And mm-hmm. everybody would say like, oh, no, they're, they're Ethiopian. And I'm like, they're not. Like, they, they are not. Like, trying to teach, you know, again, Ethiopians um, about really how diverse the United States of America is and, and what identity means, especially around race, was such a fascinating piece of that service, right? Oh, definitely. Like you said, you already described the conversation perfectly. But when I would walk down the streets, everyone would stare at me. And then as soon as I would talk to them, they'd be like, oh, no, you're Ethiopian. Everyone stared at me because they know I was different. They know I I didn't actually fit in. There was something weird about me. You know what I mean? Something that didn't match their culture. And then as soon as they would talk to me, they would be like, no, no, no. But your your dad, your dad is Ethiopian. Your grandfather is Ethiopian. And even the really intelligent ones, they would at the end of the day, they would be like, you know what? At the end, everyone comes from Ethiopia. Everyone comes from Lucy. So it was like, it was it was a conversation impossible to like actually uh, really like effectively have. But yeah, I, um, I don't know. That was that was definitely interesting to see, and because it's the same thing for me. Like, okay, I identify as African American, but other than the color of my skin, I don't have any ties to Africa anymore. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. There, that is a part of the official title which helps describe what I look like, but it actually doesn't have anything to do with my identity. So I can understand that they, you know, they're sitting there and they're looking at someone that looks very similar to them and they've never been in the U.S. most likely. The vast majority of like the people we had these conversations with hadn't. And they've never seen that like people that look like them could live in other countries, could have spent, you know, centuries there and have developed their own unique culture you know within that um i think that's just a, it's a very difficult thing for them probably to understand having never even had the experience to see other places yeah, you know what i mean I, I think that you are also particularly difficult to to nail down um because of all the nuances that we've we've talked about and i think one of the examples that comes to mind which i think is a a, a good transition into environmental education a little bit and some of your work around around that um but for Earth Day, you dressed up as a tree and walked around. <laughs> you walked around your your town talking about uh, the environment and about um, 
you know, really, you know, shedding light on all of the the environmental sustainability issues uh, that that our world is facing and trying to do that in Ethiopia and, and have a nuanced conversation with folks. Also being the uh, the American that's walking around, um, you know, doing that adds layers to it. Right. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was a fun, that was a fun project for sure. I don't think it quite came across as effectively as I wanted. I think everyone was just kind of a little bit confused, but it was definitely fun. <laughs> so, so, you know, explain what you did. Oh, yeah. Um, so what I did is I basically, um, I made a tree costume. It was a very basic tree costume with what I had. Um, but I took a hat, I put a bunch of like branches in it, I covered my face in mud and my arms and stuff, and then made like a tree thing out of um, out of a sheet. And I walked around the town and all day long, I kind of like, actually, I literally was like a town crier at this point, because I like, was yelling out into random open spaces where there were a lot of people <laughs> that, that, um, I was explaining to them basically like this hello, like it's a, greeting everyone and saying hello. This is Earth Day. This is um, a very important day where we care about the environment and blah blah. And I just want to spread awareness that we should you know think about our trees because you know deforestation is such a huge problem in Ethiopia. Um, um, and that you know they should plant trees and think about the environment today and to try to do something for the environment today because that's Earth Day. And um, and most people were just fascinated that I about what I was doing. And um, um, I think most of them misunderstood it to be some kind of a weird American holiday where everyone dresses up and puts mud on their face and walks around screaming. But <laughs> I think at least a couple of them that I talked with did understand what I was trying to get at. So yeah, it was a really fun project. It's such a great <laughs> moment to think about because it's like it embodies so many of the like core values of of being a Peace Corps volunteer. And like while like um, you know obviously we all don't dress up as as trees and and rub dirt on our face and run around. <laughs> Our communities. I love the like the visual aesthetic of that, and really the like the core that's behind that. And mm-hmm. um, I think that you know both of us have had you know experiences in our our past and and current where we've we've had to kind of um you know speak for the trees like the the had to embody the lorax (laughs) to a certain to a certain extent i think that you know again in every every situation you have to then think about uh the audience and, and really how it resonates and i know you've you've recently done some work in this space thinking about how to connect minorities to their environment and um really also thinking about how does that manifest both in the United States and in Germany. And I find that to be a a really interesting and nuanced question to try to answer. And obviously there isn't going to be one specific answer. And I think about my my experiences as well, uh, studying ecotourism uh, mm-hmm. and thinking about how that how that manifests in like Australia or South Korea, of course, Ethiopia, I worked in that space as well. And yeah. how, you know, you can try to take some of these core approaches, but also understanding that a lot of that research, uh, you know, really comes from Western societies. It comes from uh, these different power dynamics that exist. And you're, you're ultimately taking a framework and you're helicoptering it into a new setting that it, that it doesn't fit (laughs) one-to-one. And I think that's where for us as Peace Corps volunteers, and I'd love for you to, to speak to this as well, but this is where that kind of, you know, take this framework or this tool that has been, you know, conceived elsewhere outside of this community and try to, you know, 
pick, pick out and uh, you know pull the parts that may fit and try to adapt it. But then that's also where the understanding of the community that you're working in and and really trusting counterparts and partners and friends to then help bridge that gap. So there's like this interesting, you know, nuanced uh, kind of middle spot where you can meet for some of those resources. And that's, I think, where the innovation happens and where the really great mm-hmm. work can happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, it's it, it really comes down to how artful the practitioner is and how open they are to meeting, you know, the audience or the constituencies like where they're at. Right. Definitely. And, and I think exactly what you just talked about, it's on every level. It's, it's on a personal individual level, like, like what we did. Like you remember we did our, um, our, our community needs assessment in the beginning as well, where we really, which I think was a great tool that Peace Corps taught us, where we really asked the community what they needed before we just embarked on projects that we thought were good for them coming in as a Westerner that knows whatever, you know? Um, but I think this is like this, this idea that you're talking about is not only like on an individual level, which which I think we as Peace Corps volunteers really strive to do, but also on like onto the highest level, onto the whole level of the whole society of, of countries and nations and societies. And like you just mentioned, this is actually because this is such an interesting topic for me. And it was so I enjoyed writing my bachelor thesis on this so well, um, so much. I mean, um, which was exactly not only this is not only on an individual level, it's on a cultural, it's on a, a societal level as well. Um, and to explain that a little bit further, I, I you know, like you said, I, I wrote about how. Uh, about minority targeted environmental education and how they differ or how or how that look what that looks like in America and in Germany um, and it's so interesting because in America there's been such extensive research done to this topic there's so many organizations that try to deal with this topic there's so much going on about this topic and coming to Germany um, when I originally got here this was actually one of the things that I was this is the direction I wanted to go with my career and I got here and I was like Wait, no one's talking about this. It's like, it was mind boggling to me. And really, like I said, in my bachelor thesis, I wrote about it, how little or how how little information is being collected on this, how few people are talking about this topic. And there are some organizations that deal with it, but the, the uh, comparison is just... It's not even it's not even close. And um, and I and and the important thing to like in order to understand why that happens here in Germany or why that why that is the way it is here. You have to understand how the like that's what I try to explore my thesis about, like how race and racism and and, uh, how this uh, how this how every interaction around this topic has even developed over the past centuries in order to understand why this conversation doesn't exist here today. And then, and that's why, and that's what I ended up kind of concluding with my, in my bachelor thesis that you have to understand the context. And now that in like, in Germany has to kind of look at the, their context, understand in the basis of what, like of how their country developed, um, why it is the way it is. And, but still address these issues because just because you're not talking about racism doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, so yeah. Um, this is yeah. very yeah interesting for me. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, it does. And I, I like I want to unpack that a little bit more because I think that you know our our national park system you know was basically founded on this kind of fortress model of you know let's let's create these spaces for these like really like wealthy white americans to go and play and let's let's move other people out and let's keep people out and that has been the model that has been adapted around the world and i i think Mm -hmm. of like 
you know, Muir and Pinchot and um, even like uh, Roosevelt and, and some of the history there. And like, you know, a lot of the the reckoning, I think, that we're seeing in, in 2020 with our, uh, you know, our, our background, our collective history with systemic racism from slavery to Jim Crow to the civil rights movement also mass incarceration and police violence a lot of these these same kind of trajectories in this history here you know when you take the environmental lens on it uh, environmental justice is now a very specific field within uh, most environment schools across the country in the US and, and really across the world it's this emerging emerging kind of recognition that that there is still systemic oppression of course but also when you overlay kind of sustainability and uh, the environment it's it's rampant right and I think that you know if you if you were to just Google uh, like, you know, environmental education or, um, you know, you Google and then you kind of look at the image search, like you're going to find a bunch of like young white women. And that is like the face of that you know, movement in the U.S. from yeah. a, a and, and it, it just doesn't add up. Like, obviously, there are so many other, you know, identities and races and, and folks that are doing amazing work in environmental sustainability that just don't have a platform. And also, you know, and I would love you to speak to this, this latter point here is it's not as, um, I, I guess, commonplace to, to really lift up that type of work. And I think of in Ethiopia, like, you know, I, we all grew gardens and we worked really hard on like home scale, uh, composting and things like that. And even in my compound, uh, gardening was looked uh, looked upon as as something that like rural farmers did like get tattered get tattered was the word it's like yeah. that's a rural thing that like it's a it's a prestige thing and it's a status thing and like we don't grow our own vegetables because we have money to buy our vegetables right and there was this yeah. like interesting divide that that took place yeah definitely definitely um, yeah and I don't know I mean. <laughs> For you, how did you explain that then? How did you explain that like with the um, with the garden that you had in your in your compound? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I probably did a horrible job of explaining it, you know, I, <laughs> you know, reacting. I mean, I think it was a lesson that I, I really learned and have, have tried to take and kind of reapply in, in my life. But mm -hmm. I, you know, mm -hmm. you mentioned the community needs assessment and like PACA yeah. tools, like participatory yeah. analysis for community action. Like this was something that we went in to like really embrace and learn from the community first before we took on any projects. And mm -hmm. even with those tools, like I missed the boat completely on, on composting, for example. So mm -hmm. like I, I really tried to like focus on composting, but what I didn't yeah. realize is that the Ethiopian government requires farmers to buy herbicide and pesticide as, as part of their, uh, kind of annual crop rotation and, and there are all these contracts with uh, United Nations and with um, you know USAID and like all these organizations that are trying to you know help Ethiopia become food secure um, mm -hmm. which suggests that's a, a milestone that one can achieve with with an aid-based economy which is a different issue um, yeah but my composting projects failed left and right because there weren't the right incentives in place and it was also there was this cultural overlay of like well you know if you're doing that type of work you're of lower status in society like yeah. you're a farmer and we're not going to do that yeah. like right there was yeah. there was an interesting background there 
Yeah, definitely. And also like, and also tradition too, even when I remember, um, when we were doing projects like digging, like, you know, digging holes for trees or something like that, where I had an Ethiopian take the, uh, the hole out of my hand and show me this other way of doing it because that's the way he's been doing it for 5,000 years. And I was like, okay, well, that way is a little bit more like body intensive, but you do that and I'll do the, I'll do it the way I do want to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, but, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what so like, what are your thoughts on, you know, being a a, a Black American uh, and having, you know, obviously lived in in the U.S. for uh, a, a decent amount of of your life, but then also, you know, living in Germany uh, as as a young boy, but then now moving back to Germany and and really thinking about these issues, like how does it how does kind of race and identity uh, manifest within environmental education and sustainability in those two contexts? Oh, um, yeah. I mean, this has been a big, you know, like definitely like the race factor has definitely been a big part of my life. Like, um, you know, there's the way that like people see you and the way people treat you. And then there's the way that you kind of view yourself. Um, and even within your own community or without like outside of it, like I grew up, um, I'm half half American, half German. Um, but in the US, that means like, I remember one of the first times when my mom signed me up for school, she was like, okay, what do I check? He's, you know, he's African American and white. And they were like, check African American. And she's like, but why can't I check both? And, you, and the, the school straight up told her because you have to check him as African-American. That's just the thing. And so I grew up in the U.S. being identified as African-American, but also personally not always feeling like feeling like I felt like, like I fit in, um, you know, and maybe not being not having the right mannerisms, not having the right interests. You know, I wasn't into sports. I wasn't into a lot of the a lot of the things that are the expectations on us put on put on us by outsiders of what it means to be African-American. And because I didn't do a lot of those things or I didn't act that certain ways or because I didn't have the right kind of interests, um, I kind of struggled with seeing myself, which I, I because of what other people told me, which I should never have done. I, you know, just because I am an African-American that has different interests and access a different way doesn't mean I'm not African-American. But I know I struggled with that a lot as a child and a lot growing up. And as I began to, as you know, in the past, I think this has really been in the past like five or six years, especially with things like the Black Lives Matter movement, where I've been really inspired to explore the interaction between what it means to be an African-American in the U.S. and how it affects your ability to get a job, your ability to interact with the environment, all these different things um, that... I've come to like that. I've been really inspired to to want to take part in this movement, but still struggling to shed this idea of myself that I'm not black enough. I'm not African-American enough to really represent the community. Does that make sense? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I mean, we've you and I have talked about this before, um, you know, not being German enough for the Germans, not being American enough for the Americans, not being black enough for Black family yeah, not exactly. being white enough for the white side of your like those yeah. though I mean that's that's a, uh, an interesting space but I think it gives you so much nuance and insight into uh, a lot of the complexities of of race and identity right and I think that you mm-hmm. know now now you're bridging so you mentioned beginning of this conversation that you're you're bridging kind of environmental education in that world with now social work you want to talk a little bit more about what you maybe hope to achieve in bringing those two worlds together uh in in germany and and yeah 
Definitely. I mean, my dream is to continue like, uh, currently what I'm doing, I'm I currently work somewhere else, which I really appreciate, which I really enjoy. I have a job actually in a children's home. Um, and I've been doing this job while I've been supporting myself through college and I really enjoyed it. And, um, but where I want to ultimately end up, um, is to, is this whole conversation of this interaction between race and environment. I think it, it falls in multiple fields. It falls in the field of if you work as an environmental educator, which was what truly actually got me interested in this in the first place. You know, when, when I was working at my old job at Keep Austin Beautiful, I was working as an environmental educator and actually my job was just to teach kids how to recycle and compost. But when I was going to these schools that were predominantly Hispanic or predominantly African-American um, compared to maybe a suburb school out, you know, in the suburb, like in the suburbs of Austin, where there was a lot more money and income and maybe where it was more predominantly white the difference in in the amount of or in the interact uh, interaction with the environment and the knowledge of the environment was massive and also the issues that they were dealing with you know like I, I remember one day I was like trying to teach the, these my teenagers about something and one of them looks at me and is like you know what, Mr. Smalls, I have no interest in this. My mom's car got repossessed today. And it's like, yeah, why are you going to be worried about that? You know what I mean? Why are you going to listen to me about building a birdhouse when you're upset about the financial situations that are at home? And I think that honestly, in order to, to do to for me, what I would where I would like to go is to be able to be part of an organization that deals with both, that deals with the complex um social and cultural issues that are tied into being a minority in a culture and the racism and the systemic racism that may have been a part of that, that may affect the way that your life is and still being able to like, and to connect that to the environment, to be able to marry the two. And I feel that th that social, both the social work field and the environmental education field, whether you're rooted in one or the other, you have the ability to do to to reach across the aisle, so to speak, and not to just have these environmental education programs that are literally useless to someone dealing with the you know systemic the 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 issues that their minority has in that culture, but to be able to talk about both, to be able to address the issues as it is growing up as a minority in a culture, and to marry that and to bring that outdoors and to bring that outdoors and then to learn about the environment while you deal with both. Um, and that's really, and I don't know what that looks like yet. I'll be honest. I don't know quite, I don't know if there's a, a, a specific job or there's a specific organization, but somewhere, sometime in the future, that's the direction of where I want to head. Um, and I'm really excited about it. And I'm really excited to see what, like how, and how I get there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can hear it in, in your voice. I mean, I, I think that that's, that's so spot on and exactly what we need. And like, I mean, in the beginning of this conversation, we talked about bringing frameworks into to communities where it just doesn't fit and like mm -hmm. your your birdhouse example is like this kid's like i don't want to build a fucking birdhouse like i need <laughs> exactly. i need other change <laughs> but i can also imagine like you know the obviously i, I mean i grew up in a, a community like this where like as a uh you know fifth grader for example like i would have been pumped to build a birdhouse because yeah. i had the privilege of growing up in a neighborhood and being white and like having having really like a really stable uh kind of home life 
And I didn't have to worry about environmental injustice. Like I didn't have to worry about like a quote unquote fair distribution of like environmental benefits (laughs) or burdens. And because I was getting the benefits and I wasn't facing the burdens that these communities Mm -hmm. of color face. And like, again, I think that that bridge from a framework perspective from you know, environmental education as as kind of the the whitewashed world knows it versus trying to like bring that into, uh, you know, 2020 and beyond and trying to like think through new frameworks and really question our pedagogical approach to designing curriculum for communities that are, um, you know, not in the in the wealthy white suburbs is such an important job. And like, I think that every, you know, a lot of universities that uh, are in, you know, really kind of wealthy towns like Ann Arbor being one of them, you know, folks go into Detroit uh, to work on projects like this. But again, it's a similar challenge. And, 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 you know, it's stumbling over that stereotypical trope of white savior mentality going into these (laughs) communities and Peace Corps faces those same issues and, and development agencies around the world face those same issues. And until we have more, you know, folks that are, are, obviously questioning that framework, but then also developing those resources to support practitioners, support those students, like, you know, that's, that's where we need to head. Yeah, exactly. Um, And what I was just thinking too, like, like the environmental education that we then end up giving to these communities, there should be a resource. It shouldn't be just be, you know what I mean? It shouldn't just be about like, like, of course, no matter how important that is, it is important that we preserve the environment for ourselves as a future. But there's a way to present that in a way that it's also a resource to them in their present, you know what I mean? In their present current like needs and, and, and requirements. And I think like, I don't know, I just think it's so fascinating. And there's, there's like, it's just going to be, it's going to be cool to like try to build something like that. And I'm really excited. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I know we're, you know, we're running out of time, but you know, before, yeah. before we we sign off um mm-hmm. you know i wanted to ask you a question that that i've i've been thinking about too uh in reflecting on your experiences so you know you've made several humongous leaps of faith into the unknown uh mm-hmm. whether it be you know coming out as gay uh, in your family or whether it be joining the peace corps or you know you moved back to germany um to put down your roots in germany after you know, not living in that country for many, many years. And that in itself is a huge leap. So, you know, you've made these really big transitions and, you know, take this in whatever direction you would like, but, you know, what advice would you give to someone that is considering like their own jump? Like what, what really was that kind of groundwork for you as you're making those decisions? Oh, I think, I think the most important thing is don't be afraid because I think we, you know, for someone who wants to make a big jump, there's a reason why you want to make the big jump. There's always like, um, like, I don't know. I just knew, I knew for a long time before I actually moved back to Germany that one day I wanted to move back here. I knew it's somewhere deep inside. It was one of my big goals. I think we even talked about it at some point, um, when we were in Ethiopia that I, you know what I mean? And that was years before I actually finally made the leap. Um, you know, that I wanted to go, that I wanted to move back here. And I think it's super important not to be afraid because that's what kept me back actually from doing it sooner. And I'm really glad that the way my life unfolded, it gave me actually the kind of like 
kicking the ass I needed to get it going and to actually like um, to actually make the move. But the fear, like like I said, I know for a while I was afraid because I didn't know what to expect, you know. Um, and then I think then I think another big important thing is that like know it's going to be hard. Like the first year, like I think, and it doesn't matter where I was, whether I moved back to Austin, whether I was in Ethiopia, whether I was in Germany, the first year was always the hardest because you're going to be there and you might not have as many friends as you may have had before in your life. And you may be facing with a, like a lot of unknowns or like if you're going to a different country, culture shocks, and you're going to be missing the things that, you know, you, um, that you kind of left him behind. And, um, and so it's important to know like, okay, it's going to be difficult, but I'm going to make it, you know what I mean? To be patient, to be open-minded, to really like give it the time that it needs for it to develop into the experience that is going to be better for you. You know, it's like every, every, I don't know when I just think about how I, what, what I thought about what I was expecting from my experience coming here to Germany and it being four years, you know, and all the I tr- like struggles I had, even though I know Germany <laughs> lived here before the struggles I had the first year. Now I can't even, I, you know, I'm just so happy with everything that's, that's, that's happened. Like, you know, getting a degree, meeting my partner, like so many things that, you know, you know, being able to spend time with my uh, grandma here, like there's so many things that have happened that I just would never even have known we're going to be a thing we're we're going to be accomplishments of mine at that time and and here i am you know so it just that, that would be my recommendation like don't be afraid like just do it and then just know it's going to be hard and be patient and be open-minded and just you know and rely on your support system wherever they are to help you get through the hard parts until you get to the good parts <laughs> well well said uh mr bernard smalls <laughs> and i i think that this I mean, that that last answer in this conversation, I think, uh, you know, speaks directly to why you've been such an influential person in my life and just being so friendly, compassionate and open and and genuine like that. That is 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 really unique. And and you embody those traits very, very well. (laughs) Thank you, as do you, sir. And I am so I like I really mean that honestly, from the bottom of my heart, I'm super grateful for our friendship. I've learned so much from you, um, so much from your family, so much from our experiences together. Um, and I'm just really glad that I that we could sit down and talk a little about about them. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And, and listen, we'll we'll have another conversation because I've got many ideas uh, for for different ways to to build on this one. So, you know, for for folks that are looking at, you know, connecting with you, uh, I know you have an Instagram. What's what's the best way? Uh, yeah, I do have an Instagram. Um, Bernard C. Smalls is my name on Instagram. I think. Cool. I will <laughs> yeah. link that in the in the show notes, um, so so folks can reach out. Cool. Right. Well, Bernard, awesome. thank you so much. I love you. You're amazing. Keep doing what you're doing and uh, keep inspiring the world, man. Thank you, man. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This was an awesome experience, and I really appreciate you. I love you and your family, and yeah, I'm I'm glad to have been here today. All right, man. Peace.
Well, there you have it, Mr. Bernard Smalls. Such an incredible human and such an awesome conversation. Huge thank you to every single one of you who joined for the first episode of Tetua with Benjamin Morse. If you liked what you heard, please, you know the drill, subscribe, uh, leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and share this with your friends and family. Really, really appreciate it. And again, thank you so much and hope to see you back soon.